Good morning. We have two readings today, one from Romans and one from John. And as they're quite long, I've co-opted Alan into doing the second reading for me. So the first one is from Romans 8, 14 to 25. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. For by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may yet also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But what hope that is seen, sorry, but hope that is seen is no longer hope at all. Who hopes for what we already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet have, we wait for it patiently. The second reading is from John chapter 11, verse 17 to 44. Jesus comes towards Bethany. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, which was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who had opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odour, for he's been dead for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in the strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gisbers. We're, uh, we're asking some of the most confronting questions that people ask of Christian faith. And today we're asking about the, the problem, the question of suffering. And I want to say up top that this is, a, this is a deeply complex question and one without uh, a simple, neat answer, either from Christianity or I think any other religion or worldview. You won't go away from here this morning thinking, great, I've got my neat, simple answer to the problem of suffering. It's not that kind of question. Rather, it's my hope that we'll go away from here this morning with a deeper understanding of why the question matters so much, 
why Christians believe that the gospel does actually provide the best answer, the best engagement with the problem of suffering, and why we choose to worship a God who deals with suffering in a completely unique way to any other God or worldview. So I think we should begin by trying to understand the confronting question itself, right? And the, the question is, how could a good God allow suffering? How could a good God allow suffering? This is a question that people have asked uh, across human history. Because across human history, we've seen suffering all around us. We see suffering in our lives. We see suffering on the news. We see suffering in our world. Perhaps you're battling a long struggle with your mental health. Perhaps you're being exploited at work. My friends lost their baby boy when he was one month old. There are, there are famines, there are wars, there are pandemics. Our world is one that has lots of suffering in it. And so people ask, if there's a God, how could God let all that happen? And sometimes the question is philosophical and logical. Sometimes the question is, a, is an anguished cry of pain. So it's a question that's, that's been asked by, by scholars, by philosophers, philosophers, by theologians across the ages. And not just asked of the Christian God, of course, but of, of any uh, God or any worldview. And the question's often posed this way. If, if God is all good and all-powerful, and all-knowing, then he couldn't allow suffering. If he knows there's a child starving in a famine, and he has the power to alleviate that child's hunger, but he doesn't do it, he can't be good. The, the philosophers will talk about this as uh, the moral problem of evil, or the moral argument from evil, which asserts that there's a logical inconsistency for these four statements on the screen to be all true. So the argument says it's, it's, it's impossible, it's logically inconsistent for all of these to be true, that God is omniscient, which is all-knowing, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, that he's omnibenevolent, that he's morally perfect, or good, and that there's evil in the world. So the question, how could a good God allow suffering or does suffering disprove God? It's, it's a technical, philosophical question. But of course, it's also it's a heartbroken and an emotional and a personal question, isn't it? The mother of that child in famine isn't considering the moral argument from evil, right? No, she, she's crying out in anguish. God, how could you let this happen? Please, God. Please, why would you let my child suffer in this way? Why aren't you helping us? It's a very different way of asking the same question. Why haven't you taken away my depression? Why am I still so lonely? Why did you let me get so sick? That's why we can't expect a simple answer to this question because it's not a simple question. So let's, let's consider together how Christian theology, how the message of Christian faith does engage with, how it does respond to this question, how could a good God allow suffering? There's a couple of kind of key 
um, key points or key engagements I want to explore together. The, the first is called the free will defense. So uh, th this has been around for a long time in Christian thinking. Uh, in recent kind of decades, uh, a, a scholar called Alvin Plantinga has been a prominent kind of proponent of this. And the free will defense is, is centered around this idea of, of human free will. So it says that God is light and life and goodness. God is peace. And he creates humanity to share this, this goodness, this life with him. And in his goodness to us, he created us with free will, with genuine free will. Right? Not to be slaves to him, but to be decision-making agents with choice. The choice to participate in a relationship of love with God. But, but genuine free will, genuine choice, necessarily includes agency for people to, to reject God. The cost of God granting humanity free will to choose him was the risk that we would choose to reject him, to, to sin, that's what Christians call it, and to bring on the consequences of that rejection, which is death and suffering. And, and that's exactly what we have done, isn't it? At a species level and at an individual level, each of us and all of us have, have rejected God. We have sinned. And so we face the consequence of that free will rejection of God and we suffer. Does, does the logic kind of make sense there? So because God created us with dignity to choose him, we necessarily had the opportunity to reject him, and we did. And because he is, is life and his goodness, rejection of him leads to, to the opposite, to, to death and to suffering. A long time ago, Augustine explored this line of thinking as well, asserting that God is, is just, it's, it's just of God to not intervene against our free will, and so he allows us to turn away from him and to death and suffering. Like the, the distant outer planets of our solar system are freezing cold and completely inhospitable to life because they are so far from the sun, that source of heat, so the distance between us and God because of sin introduced death and, and suffering. And this means, right, that in the Christian worldview, suffering is not meant to exist. This is really important. Suffering and death are invasions into our world. It's not the way that God made things to be. On page one of the Bible in Genesis, God made the world and it was very good. Suffering invaded the world when humans exercised our free will to reject God and, and the whole order of the universe was fractured. See, a Christian response to the problem of suffering in the world doesn't attempt to ignore or downplay or excuse suffering or evil. Not at all. But the God of the Bible desperately grieves every moment of suffering. The God of the Bible is as opposed to suffering and evil as we are. And our own moral response to suffering, our own outrage, our own sadness at suffering, points, in fact, to the God who made things to be good, the God who grieves suffering as we do. 
C.S. Lewis focuses on this point uh, as he grapples with the question of, of suffering. Uh, and this, this line of thinking is often called the argument from desire. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis explains this. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? See, our, our desire to end suffering is a glimpse of the good God who created people to reflect his loving nature by, by caring for one another. We feel that this world should be different. It should be free from suffering, right? That's the way things should be. And that, that very impulse is a longing that God has given us so that we would look for something beyond this life. There, there would be no shadows without sunshine. Right? This, is the, this is the argument from desire. So C.S. Lewis concludes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So an implication of this is that it's right to feel injustice. It's right to grieve over evil and suffering. Deeply, objectively, ultimately right to do that. If you're here and, and you're not a Christian, and this question of how good God could allow suffering is a big question for you, then I, I wanna affirm the emotional intensity, the significance of this question. And I want, to, I want to suggest that Christianity not only provides a coherent response to the question, but it actually gives us a reason to demand an answer better than many worldviews, better than atheism does. Where, where atheism responds to the existence of suffering by saying that's how the world is. We, we need to deal with it as best we can. Christianity weeps at suffering and cries out to God to intervene. A, a logically consistent atheism sees suffering as having no ultimate or transcendent meaning, right? And indeed, the same thing for goodness, no transcendent meaning. Christianity says that suffering matters more deeply than we could imagine because it matters to God. And, and similarly, that goodness matters more than we could imagine because it matters to God. So, so Christianity engages the moral problem of evil with the, the free will defense, with the argument from desire. And we also point to God's goodness in bringing good things out of suffering and evil. God uses even evil and suffering to bring about his purposes and achieve good things. Not, not in a naive, unhelpfully simple, toxic positivity kind of way, but, but in a deep and mysterious and gracious way. He does take bad things and bring good out of them. As we read before in Romans 8, our, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
all of creation waits in eager expectation for its, its liberation from its bondage to decay, to be brought into freedom and glory. Right? It's saying that even the great suffering which this world experiences will be surpassed, far surpassed, by the glory, the freedom, the ultimate good thing that God is doing in this world and for this world, even through suffering. Verse 22 uh, in Romans 8 there uses the image of childbirth, right? that experience of, of pain and uncertainty, but with the hope of a great gift at its end. God is bringing about something good, which is so much greater than all the bad in this world. Though God didn't force suffering upon humanity, He is working even through suffering to achieve His purposes for us. We said it couldn't be a simple answer to this question, right? To the problem of suffering. Christianity provides a, a multifaceted, a, a complex response to this complex problem. Of course, Christians aren't the only people who've grappled with this problem or the only faith that's grappled with this problem. There are many worldviews, many groups, uh, both religious and atheistic, uh, who have responded to this question of the problem of suffering. And the Christian response is quite different to the response of uh, Buddhism, which sees suffering and evil as expressions of, of human desire and ignorance. The Buddha said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. And, and that end of suffering that he teaches comes through humans transcending desire and attaining knowledge such that suffering ceases. Hindu faith uh, is somewhat similar with its focus on the law of karma, of cause and effect. Suffering is, is a consequence of past actions, whether in this life or a previous life, and, and the path out of suffering is through ensuring good karma in the future. An atheist view obviously doesn't include God in, or any, any divine being in its explanation of the problem of human suffering, but just sees suffering as, as inherent in the world with its natural processes. The, the, the processes of the world include suffering so we suffer. In an atheist view, there's no ultimate freedom from suffering, but we endeavor to do what we can to minimize suffering and to promote human well-being. Humans, though being the cause of much suffering, are the best chance of alleviating suffering. If you find the Christian response to suffering to be intellectually or emotionally unsatisfying. Let me challenge you to, to identify which other belief system provides a better alternative. In the end, there are various explanations which have enough logical consistency for people to choose to believe them, right? I think the Christian logic is, is genuinely preferable, but it's true that others would say that of their own worldview, of course. But it's not just about logic, is it? Any, any worldview, any faith, any belief system can be assessed for whether it's, it's coherent and livable, whether it makes sense 
whether it, it works for real life, whether it's coherent and livable. And I don't think there's another response to suffering which satisfies both. Atheism has a, has a pretty good coherence, but I don't think it's truly livable. The English atheist philosopher Julian Bargini, he writes this a little sarcastically. The more brutal facts of life are harsher for us than they are for those who have a story to tell in which it all works out right in the end. I, I think he's absolutely right, and I think that's a deeply troubling part of an atheistic view of suffering. If there is no God, if there is no, nothing bigger than the atoms which make up our bodies and the planets, then there's no ultimate meaning in suffering. And we have no resources to face it beyond what we can summon from within ourselves. Islam and, and Judaism, the other major monotheistic religions of the world, they have responses to suffering which are more similar to the Christian response, in which evil and suffering exist as the consequences of human free will and, and our rejection of a good and loving God. But there's something which Christianity provides that Islam and, and Judaism don't, and indeed no other faith system, nor atheism. A God who suffers with us. A God who suffers with us. And th this, is, this is our, our final response to the problem of suffering. Our final response to the question, how could a good God allow suffering? is that in the end, he doesn't. In the end, he doesn't. Suffering happens, and it is as awful as it feels. It is an invasion into the good world that God made. But God will not allow it to continue forever. He won't allow it to go unpunished. He won't allow it to be meaningless. In John chapter 11, that second reading that we had, one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, dies. And Jesus goes to Lazarus' house and he meets Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, desperately grieving her dead brother. She's heartbroken, right? She is suffering and she's feeling the impact of suffering in the world. Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Likewise, her sister Mary, when she sees Jesus, falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What are they doing, right? They're, they're not considering the moral problem of evil, right? No, they're crying out from broken hearts, why did you let this happen? Why didn't you stop this? This is the question of suffering asked in the most personal and devastating way. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
His friend is dead. His other friends are grieving. And Jesus feels the problem of suffering. He feels it. He participates in it. He knows it. Isn't that that's so important? He's not detached. He's not insulated from suffering. Right? Allah is completely separate from his creation and unaffected by suffering. Buddha has transcended beyond the experience of suffering. Ganesh is free from any suffering or human emotions. But not Jesus. He's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It's difficult to translate those words, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, from, from the original Greek into English. But it's a word to carry something like aggravated or disturbed. It's the word used for a war horse as it stamps and snorts before it charges into battle. When Jesus meets suffering and death, he's, he's not just sad, he's furious. He's going to war. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Why? Why did Jesus weep? He already knew he would raise Lazarus. He promised it back in verse 4. No, he weeps because he's sharing in the true human experience, our experience of suffering and loss. He weeps for his friends. He weeps for the invasion of death in this world. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from death? If he's strong enough and good enough, why didn't he stop this? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did, not, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. In the face of suffering, Jesus does something. In the face of death, Jesus gives life. That's who he is. That's what he does. And not just for Lazarus, but for you, for me. Because just a few days after giving Lazarus life, Jesus gave up his own life to bring about the ultimate end to suffering. 
charged for crimes that he didn't commit. Jesus was beaten, flogged, spat on, stripped naked, humiliated and shamed, hung on a cross to die. He doesn't just sympathize with our suffering. He truly knows our suffering. Can you imagine a God who cares about our suffering so much that he would endure his own great suffering to bring about the end of ours? That's what the suffering of Jesus accomplishes for us. That, that sin that we talked about, that, re- that free will rejection of God, which brought suffering and death into the world, Jesus' undeserved death paid the price for that sin, for that rejection, the price that we deserve to pay, and released us from the debt of sin. Jesus rose from the dead, and not just back to life like Lazarus, but into unending, perfected life with God, and he invites us into that life with him. We believe that one day he will return again, and when he does, suffering will meet its end. Jesus will return as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, going once again into battle against sin and suffering and death, and they will meet their end. On the last page of the Bible, God dwells with his people. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's that's the world put right. That's the world the way it should be. That's the end of suffering. It can't come from us. It can only come from God. There is no simple answer to the question of suffering, but there is an answer in Jesus which is not only coherent, but which is deep and tender and ultimate and powerful. I'm going to pray to to thank God for what he does to bring an end to suffering, and then we're going to sing. So if you'd like to, would you pray with me? God, when we desperately grieve suffering in the world and in our lives, we thank you that you grieve it with us. We thank you that you're not insulated from our suffering. We thank you for taking us by the hand, for sharing in our experience, for making a way to the ultimate end of our suffering. We thank you that you would give yourself for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.